Thank you, Pastor Paul. I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but uh, I met Paul and his wife via a prayer card on the wall of my, at that time, girlfriend's parents' house. So of all things, Ruth's parents had the Van Lowe's prayer card right there. Um, they, they had a little nook where their, where their kitchen table was, and they had it lined with prayer cards, that little nook uh, above the like, chair rail. And the Van Lowe's, I remember, the McLean's obviously too, but uh, I remember your prayer card then. And little, little what I know as a 15-year-old kid <laughs> back in the day dating the 16-year-old cutie, um, that someday that God would call us uh, to ministry and, and that we'd be, we'd be serving together in this, this way in a church like this. And so we're just thankful for your ministry. We're thankful for this church. Thank you for the, the warmth. Um, we have just, from the second we walked in the door here, felt very much at home. If, if I lived in Palm Bay, Florida, <laughs> this is where we would go to church. It just, when, when we live in Palm Bay, Florida. <laughs> Well played, my love. Well played. (laughs) Normally, I remind her that she's supposed to be quiet when I'm speaking up here, but obviously, I didn't didn't say anything to her tonight. But uh, (laughs) yeah, we just we really have. We've enjoyed just the way you've made us feel welcome and the opportunities we've gotten to know. We only wish we had more time, honestly, uh, to get to know you more and to learn more about your 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 stories and how God brought you to faith in Christ and, and how God brought you to this church. Some of you have shared some of those stories with us, and that's been a delight to hear. You are a, a blessed group. God's blessed this church in a lot of ways between the pastoral staff and the, the people, the, the music. We've thoroughly enjoyed the music and just a lot of different things. I could probably go on and on. The only bad part was is that you feed us too much food. <laughs> okay? Tonight was awesome. It was really, it was incredible. I'm not sure which is more unfair, though. Uh, me having to preach with an overfull stomach, or you having to stay awake <laughs> while I preach with an overfull stomach. I'm not sure which one is worse, but uh, thank you to all that prepared all of those, all that wonderful food. I will not start to pick favorites because I know that I'll offend somebody else who's, who I didn't pick. But there are I, there were some definite favorites that uh, that I had and enjoyed and appreciate all all the work that that you put into that, and and then of course all the work that was put into this conference. This is a fantastic conference, so thanks for the opportunity and, and the privilege. And thank you for the, the trust that you place in Baptism Admissions, because it is a trust relationship in terms of the missionaries that are a part of our mission family, and you, you choosing to support missionaries like the Baptist Admissions missionaries, and I, and I trust that this, just our opportunity to be together has built that relationship, even as, as uh, Pastor Paul mentioned, uh, between Baptist Admissions, and Faith Baptist Church. So thank you for that opportunity. We take that very seriously. Take your Bible and go tonight to Acts chapter 9, if you would. Acts chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a, a question in relationship to my, my title of my message. And, and the question is this. When you think of men in the New Testament who accomplished great things in the work of the Lord, of whom do you usually think? Okay, the first person that comes to, to our minds, right, is usually it's either Paul or Peter. It's one of those two, right? The Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul. And usually Paul's at the top of the list, and, and rightfully so, right? In terms of what God did in his life to save him, that's actually given in this account earlier in the text. We won't read that portion of it. But also, I mean, God used, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he used the Apostle Paul to, to write almost half of the books of the New Testament, that in and of itself is amazing. And, and the Apostle Paul was instrumental, and I think you could make a case for tens of thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, perhaps even larger numbers than that. He was a part in planting numerous uh, churches across the, the Mediterranean region of the, of the Roman Empire. And so, you know, just an amazing character in the, in the New Testament. And, and, he, and he lived by faith, and he also died by faith. New Testament doesn't give us the specifics of that, but tradition does, in that uh, he, didn't, he, di- he died not too long after writing his last book of the New Testament in 2 Timothy. And so he gave his very life for Jesus Christ and served Jesus Christ faithfully to the very end. But on the flip side, the New Testament is also filled with other men and women of faith who came in contact with Paul or even served alongside of Paul. 
And yet I would guess tonight if I started naming some of those names that probably many of you would go, oh, I didn't know he was in the Bible. Oh, I didn't know she was in the Bible. Because they, they have relatively obscure names, but also there isn't a lot that is said about them in the New Testament because they are, in a sense, kind of the forgotten uh, kind of people in, in, of the New Testament. Paul, obviously, is unforgettable. And yet those men and women significantly served God in impactful ways and were used of God in, in amazing ways, even if the New Testament doesn't always say a whole lot about them. Uh, scripture doesn't let us forget them because many of them were ordinary people whom God used to do extraordinary things. And the case could be made that they may be the unsung heroes of the first century, of first century Christianity that the Bible seems to not say a lot about, but they had a significant impact. And though many of them seem insignificant, their lives speak to us today of the fact that God loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And tonight, I want us to look at an individual like that in the New Testament in Acts chapter 9, whom again, if I just quizzed you and said, what do you know about? Probably most of us would go, uh, think back to that Sunday school lesson. I think I know who that guy is. What do you know about Ananias? And by the way, there are more than one, there's more than one Ananias in the New Testament, okay? So which Ananias is probably part of what's going on. Well, let's look at what the text says here. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, when it says this, Acts 9 verse 10 says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. What an extraordinary statement. And, and Ananias is an example of an ordinary person that God used in extraordinary ways. And, and that's what God loves to do. God loves to use people like you, people like me, ordinary people, in extraordinary ways. And so tonight, I want to take a look at, at that. And that the text here says doesn't say a whole lot about him. You'll notice it there in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple. We'll get into that a little, with a little more detail, but that's not a grandiose statement, right? Just a certain disciple. And yet, we'll see from this passage of Scripture that God used him in incredible ways. Would you pray with me as we ask God to bless our time together in the Word this evening? Father, thank you for this conference. Thank you for this church and for the joy it's been to get to know our, our brothers and sisters in Christ here, for the fellowship that we've enjoyed around the Word as well as around food and in the hallway and, and in other, other uh, contexts. And we just pray your rich blessing on this church, its pastors and its people. We also, though, pray, Lord, tonight that you would use your word in a powerful way in every one of our hearts, Lord, that we would, even as the kids sang in the children's choir tonight, uh, be willing to do our part wherever that is, whether that's right here or somewhere across the world, that we would have hearts that are surrendered and that are willing to serve you and willing to be used by you. And so I pray that you would speak to us in a very real and a very personal way through your, 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 word, of, your word, the word of God, the, the living, powerful Word of God that we will study together this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to note five things tonight, or five aspects tonight in relationship to how God loves to use ordinary people in extraordinary ways. The first one you'll notice in the text is the person of Ananias. And I alluded to this when I, when I pointed out the fact that the Scripture refers to him as, as a certain disciple. So think, think about four different things in relationship to the person of Ananias. First of all, his designation. He's, de he's designated as a disciple. Uh, a follower, a, a learner, a, a term that along with believer was commonly used to, to describe a devoted follower, someone who was all in in terms of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he was a devoted follower of Christ, but we don't know, we don't even know how he became that. The scripture doesn't tell us the details. It's possible he may have been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard the gospel. That's a possibility. Or somewhere along the line, he may have inter intersected with somebody else that was a believer and shared the gospel with him, but we don't know the details other than he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's his designation. But secondly, I, I think that it's worthwhile for us to point out his name as well. Obviously, this would have been a name given to him at birth, not after conversion, but the name is significant in that Ananias means Jehovah has been gracious. What a wonderful name. Jehovah, the Lord, the I am, 
we are, have described for us in detail in the Old Testament, who is the God of, God of the Bible, Jehovah has been gracious. He has given to, to me that which I do not deserve, that which I cannot earn. Isn't that what salvation is after all? It's God giving eternal life and forgiveness of sins to us, not on the basis of our righteousness, because we all know we're condemned to hell on the basis of our unrighteousness. And yet he extends to us this free gift called eternal life. And that's what Ananias had experienced personally. He had experienced personally that Jehovah is gracious, or Jehovah has been gracious. And so it's a common Old Testament name, but it's a beautiful name when you think about it even from a a New Testament perspective of him having lived out by experience the very name that he was given as a child. Jehovah has been gracious. His name. Thirdly, notice his reputation. And we we go to Acts chapter 22 for this. I don't know that you necessarily need to turn there because we won't have time this evening to read the entire text. But in Acts chapter 22, it's it's 20 years later than Acts chapter 9, okay? And now it's the Apostle Paul that is speaking, not, I mean, it's the same person, but by a different title. Uh, Saul is how he's referred to in Acts chapter 9. But but 20 years later, uh, the Apostle Paul is giving his salvation testimony to the Jerusalem mob. And as he shares that salvation testimony, he shares his conversion experience, and he shares what happens with more detail from Acts chapter 9. And he says this in Acts chapter 22, verse 12. He describes Ananias. He says, Ananias was, quote, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all of the Jews who dwelt there. And so what, he, what he's referring to is the faithfulness and the, and the reputation of Ananias, that he was, as, as it says there in the text, he was a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. And so early Christians at this point still, most of them still attended synagogue. And so apparently as a Jewish man there, he was, he was involved in that. And, and, and after all, that was where that's where Saul was headed in Acts chapter 9. He was, he was headed to uh, the Damascus synagogue. Acts 9-2 shares that. And so Ananias was well known in the synagogue specifically for his faithfulness. Think about that for a second. His faithfulness to the Word of God and a, a lifestyle that was exemplary. That's significant. The only thing that might have been, if I can put it this way, extraordinary about Ananias was his faithfulness. The only thing that might have been extraordinary about Ananias was his faithfulness. And and here's the thing I want us to make sure we understand. The great thing about faithfulness is that any ordinary person can be extraordinarily faithful. Everybody can be faithful. You don't have to have some special talent. You don't have to be have some special gift. You just have to have what you have and, and use what God has given you in whatever way you can use that. Be faithful. And that's what God expects. Or to put it another way, faithfulness takes no talent. There's a tendency for us to, to maybe spotlight people that we think of as extraordinary because they have this skill or they have that skill or this talent or, or that talent. The reality that matters is God doesn't expect us to be talented. He expects us to be faithful. And that's the kind of people God wants to use in this church and around the globe tonight, people that are just willing to be faithful. Faithful. You don't have to be super talented to be faithful. And I think God especially loves to use the ordinary, yet faithful people. Because sometimes talented people get kind of full of themselves. And it's altogether too easy for talented people to rely upon what? Themselves and their talents. Instead of relying on God and and His power and His enablement, they fall back to the talents they have. God doesn't want us to rely. He wants us to use our talents, but He doesn't want us to rely on our talents. He wants us to rely on Him. And so He gets the most glory when He uses just regular people and does amazing things through just ordinary, regular people. I love also then His response, His reputation And then his response, because in the response, notice what the text says. Again, we're in verse 10. Sees the Lord in a vision, and the Lord says, Ananias, and and he said, that's Ananias, says to the Lord, here am I, Lord, or here I am, Lord. What a beautiful response. Number one, he knew it was the Lord. That says something about even his relationship with God. And he knew that it was the Lord speaking, and his response is simply one of submission. 
Here, here am I. Here I am, Lord. He responded with availability. Availability. Someone has said that the greatest ability is availability. And Ananias was simply available. He exemplified that kind of availability. And so I would, I would ask you tonight, is that true of you? Are you someone who is available to serve God and to be used of God in whatever capacity He wants to serve in? And then through this church or in some other way or some other place, if, if God called upon you, and not that God speaks in audible voices today or through visions today, but if there was a sense in your heart that, that God was moving in your heart and your life in this way, would your response say, would your response be to say to God, here am I, Lord. Here am I. Use me. Here am I. I'm available. Why does God say that to Ananias? Why would God say that to us? Because God loves to use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And don't sell yourself short by thinking, well, what do I have? You know, what do I have for talents? Or, or what could I possibly do in the work of the Lord. The reality of the matter is it's not about what you have for talents, it's about whether or not you're available. Back when I was a student at Faith Baptist Bible College as a college freshman, we all took introduction to missions. And my professor was a missionary that had been a Baptist mid-missions missionary in Central Africa, C-A-R and Chad. And Mr. Dannenberg, was his name, Earl Dannenberg, was about the most fired up for missions guy that I've ever met in my life. He wanted everybody to be a missionary. I mean, literally, he wanted, I was in the pastoral studies classes, and, and so he, he would try to talk all of us pastoral study guys out of changing majors to be missionaries, okay? That's just how fired up he was. But one of the things I remember him saying that caught my attention was this. He said, you know what? The, the people that make the best missionaries, and he said, especially Africa, because that's, that's where his, his experience was. He said, the best missionaries for Africa are farm boys. And I thought, well, how, I mean... How was that the case? Why would that be the case? And then he went on to expand on it. He said, I love to have a farmer, a farm kid as a missionary in Africa because they're hardworking, because they're handy, because they can live without, they can live, they can live simply. There's no airs about them, and they're just simply ordinary. They're just simply ordinary. And I think he, he, I think he hit on something. That it wasn't that you had to be these grand pulpiteer, great preachers, or the next Charles Haddon Spurgeon or something like that to be a missionary. It's just that you needed to be willing and available and willing to work hard and eager to do whatever God wanted you to do and not worry about everything else. And I would say that's true of us. You don't have to be a farm kid, okay? You don't have to be a farm boy to be a missionary. But his point was simply that, that God is interested in, in using the average, He's u- interested in, in using the available probably is, is the more important thing. He's interested in using the available. And so I would ask you tonight, are you available? Are you available? Available to serve God in whatever capacity, both here in this church? And are you available if he were to ask you, if he were to prompt you to serve him somewhere else in his great harvest field? The person of Ananias. Notice then secondly, the, the plan and this time it's the plan of God because verse 11 and 12, it gets interesting. It, it gets interesting if you're Ananias, okay? So as we read this, put yourself in, in his sandals, okay? And think what it might have been like to have been Ananias. Verse 11 says, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> so what do you think went on in, in his heart the second that name was used, Right? I mean, absolute terror. This guy's basically a, a, a terrorist. I mean, from a perspective of a Christian at that time. And so, so he says, go to, and look for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has already seen a man named Ananias. In other words, I've already given Saul a vision, and he's already seen you. You're coming. <laughs> okay, it's going to happen. And, and, and you're coming in, in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And so we have before us in verses 11 and 12 the plan of God. Notice a, a few things in relationship to the plan of God. Number one, there was a place. God had a specific place in mind, and he describes it as the house of Judas on straight streets. Then secondly, a person, and that's Saul Tarsus. The latter portion of verse 11 tells us of that. And just the mere mention of that name would have struck fear in the heart of every follower of Jesus. 
Because they knew what had already happened. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but they knew what had already happened with Stephen, right? Stephen had already been stoned and they, they brought their clothing to whose feet? Saul's feet. He was the ringleader. He was the one that was commissioned to go to Damascus to, to grab some more Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, probably to end up dead in the process. And so that was the person that is described here, this Christian killer. But then thirdly, notice the prophecy. And the prophecy must have been, even been more incredible as Ananias is hearing that and is processing that. He says, he's already seen a vision. You're coming. <laughs> You're going to go there. I've got a plan. It's going to happen. And so there, there's this, this prophecy he'd already seen in a vision as if it had already happened. And so God had a plan for Ananias. And listen, folks, God has a plan for you too. God has a plan for every one of our lives. He has a, a good and acceptable and perfect will, does he not, as Romans 12 puts it? For every single one of our lives. And the, the, the future is as much a reality to a timeless God as the present and the past. We have a tendency to always just kind of think of our lives and what's going on today or what happened yesterday, what's going on today, what's going on tomorrow. And God lives in all those places. He's eternal. He's, he's infinite. He's, he's, he's timeless. And so God has a plan for what is going to happen in your life tomorrow, but he also has a plan for your life tomorrow and far beyond that. My question for you is this. Do you think that when Ananias got up that morning, that was his plan? Right? And when he got up that morning, was he thinking, you know, I bet I'm going to have a vision from God. <laughs> and he's going to go tell me to lay hands on a Christian killer, Saul of Tarsus. I don't think he thought that was the plan for his day to do that. But it's important for us to understand it is always God's omniscient and sovereign prerogative to interrupt our plans with his, and I would add a word, with his infinitely better ones. I don't know about you, but I like to plan. I like to have everything kind of like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Let's think ahead and make sure we got this planned out. Make sure we have that planned out. And one of, the, one of the problems with being a planner is when God interrupts it. And sometimes I wonder what he's up to. It's like, God, I had a plan here. What's going on? You know? And the reality of the matter is, is that's his prerogative because he's God and I'm not. He's God and you're not. It's his, his prerogative to interrupt those plans. And his plans are always better than our plans. And that's exactly what happened in Ananias' life. All of a sudden, God shows up and says, I've got a plan. It's not your plan. It's not the one you would have chosen. But it's the one I have. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. And we need to be reminded of that because our tendency at times is to think our plan's the best plan. I think even in relationship to missions that sometimes people, if I can put it this way, in the pew, and maybe even I've thought this in the past too, is Sometimes I think we think that all missionaries all along always wanted to be missionaries. Right? I mean, like, you know, the, at age two, they're like, I want to be a missionary, right? No, we, we, we should know better than that. The reality of the matter is most of the testimonies I hear at Baptist Missions are not that. There are a few that were like, you know, when I was 12, you know, I gave my life to the Lord for missions, and, and there are a few like that, but usually it's more the other way around, is God began this tug in my heart for missions, and and I said, Lord, you got the wrong person. <laughs> Somebody else down the pew or somewhere else that's not me. That's not what I want to do. And the Lord kept working and working and working and working and working until finally I said, okay, Lord, I surrender to your will and I surrender to your plan. And maybe that's you, where you've sensed God leading you in this direction. You've sensed God leading you in that direction. You're like, oh, Lord, you got the wrong person. Are you willing to do what God wants you to do? I'm reminded of some of the early testimonies of some of our earliest missionaries. I mentioned on Sunday morning, William Haas, the founder of, of Baptist Mid-Missions, who left the pastorate in Ohio and went to Africa for the first time. And, and then I mentioned, I don't, I don't think I went into really much detail, but there was a team that he took back with him in 1920 of, of missionaries, first-time, first-term missionaries they took back with him. One of them was a man by the name of Ferdinand Rosenau. And Ferd, Ferd Rosenau was a wheat farmer in North Dakota. And with no intent whatsoever to be a missionary, I think if you had asked him before he sensed God's call to missions, he would have said, if you'd asked him, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? He would have said, I'm going to be a wheat farmer in North Dakota for the rest of my life. That's my plan. That's my plan. And yet God did a work in his heart, a work of surrender and a work of, of a sense of the Lord wants me to serve him. 
in, in Af and ended up becoming Africa, ended up being Africa, and he had to give up all that he had planned to do with his life to go serve the Lord in what then became Central African Republic, French Equatorial Africa. And, and honestly, that would be the testimony of almost everybody in ministry, especially missions, but, but almost everybody in ministry. I mean, I think back to when I was a teenager and God was starting to do work in my heart, and I was like, no, Lord, I want to make a lot of money. And I know that, I know that our pastor has to work a part-time job. We were in a small church. He was driving bus in order to make ends meet. And I thought, well, that's not, I don't want to do that. I want to make a lot of money. And so ministry wasn't my first choice, but God compelled my heart and did a work in my heart and brought me to a point of me saying, yes, Lord, I surrender. I, I'm willing. And by the way, just because you surrender doesn't mean that that's, that will be the final place that God will have you serve him, okay? Uh, God may confirm in your heart that that's not his will for your life, but every one of us ought to be surrendered. Every one of us ought to be willing to go and to be, like I said Sunday morning, and to do whatever God wants us to do. What are your plans? And what if God interrupted your plans for ones that are infinitely better? Are you willing to say yes to whatever his plan may be for your life? Are you willing to say yes to the plan of God? Because God loves to use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Thirdly, notice the problem. The problem is found in verses 13 and 14, and it would probably be the same problem for us. Again, put yourself in Ananias' sandals. Notice what, it's, what it says. It is kind of, I don't know, it's kind of interesting that he's saying this to the Lord, okay? He's, he's borderline talking back to God, okay? N notice what it says. Then Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And there he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, I know all about this Saul of Tarsus, and I know what he's going to do to me if I go and meet him. So no, notice again, a, a couple of things in relationship to what the text says about the problem for Ananias. First of all, the, repu the reputation or his reputation, word had spread about Saul's persecution in Jerusalem. Undoubtedly, he knew the account, as, men as I mentioned earlier, of Acts chapter 6 and the stoning of Stephen and placing of uh, uh, the clothes at Saul's feet. He'd also heard about what had happened in Acts chapter 8. And, and, and some of the specifics of that include the following. Acts 8, 1 through 4 says this, Now Saul was consenting, this is to Stephen's death, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. In other words, the persecution was so bad that the Christians scattered all over the place. For their own safety and for their own well-being, they, they scattered and didn't all remain in Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, And devout men carried Stephen, Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So imagine, he's, he's going house to house looking for Christians, snagging them out of, the, out of their houses and throwing them in jail. That's the reputation of Saul. That's what struck fear in the heart of Ananias. That's why, after all, Saul had come to Damascus. The beginning of Acts chapter 9 tells us that, was to do the very same thing. And, and, and the text there in Acts 9 verses 1 and 2 describes of his threats and murder, of the terms that are used. Verse 1 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So again, ask yourself the question, if God says to you, now go lay hands on Saul of Tarsus, what comes to your mind? <laughs> the same exact thing, right? The same exact thing, that this is a guy that wants to kill me. Why in the world would I even be in the same room with this guy? That's what the thinking of Ananias was. It's secondly, not only his reputation, but his reason, and I've already alluded to that, his reason was to, to come and to capture and deport. And so a Ananias hoped the day would never come that he would see face-to-face -face the dreaded Saul of Tarsus. Because he knew that if he ever saw him, it wouldn't be good. It would be his likely demise. And so to do what the Lord was asking Ananias to do was nothing less than a death wish. A death wish. Suicidal almost to do so. It would be like a, a believer today walking into, a, into an ISIS cell and saying two things. I'm an American and I'm a Christian. 
right? I'm an American, I'm a Christian. What does that guarantee you? Right? Wouldn't take very long unless they wanted to put you on TV for a while to show you off. That's what would happen. And that's, that would be the, the New Testament equivalent of this, or at least similar to that. And so what, I, what Ananias didn't know was what had already happened to Saul. He had no idea at this point. And he had no idea what God's plans were for Saul. And that's the challenge, isn't it? We don't know what God has in store. We don't know what God has in store for us. We don't know what God has in store for somebody else. We don't know what God's already doing in somebody else's heart. I mean, so many times when I've had the joy of leading somebody to Christ, I found out either at that time or afterwards that God was already doing a preparatory work in their heart to draw him to themselves. And there was all kinds of background information. I had no idea what was going on, but God did because God was the one that was doing that work. And God's the one who always does the work, right? He's the one who always does the work. And so the, the, challenge, the challenge here for Ananias was that all he could see was Saul the killer. All he could see was Saul the murderer. All he could see was, was what was happening right there. He didn't know the rest of the story. And that's the challenge. We don't know what God has in store for us, but He does. And that's what requires faith. I mean, I think about what, what was portrayed Sunday night, Harold Reiner, and, and just a little bit of his life. Some more of, of, of the rest of the story all these years later, and obviously Harold Reiner was one of a lot of missionaries in, in northeast Brazil that God used from Baptist missions in, in great ways, but, but, but the rest of the story is, is, is this, that since Harold Reiner and others that then followed him went to northeast Brazil, uh, there have been all kinds of churches that have started, and, and even in, right there in, in the Cariri, in Crato, in Jazeiro do Norte, there, there's, a, there's a Bible college there, and, and I, I interacted with, uh, with one of our missionaries that's still serving there at the Bible college or seminario, and, and one of the things he said was this, that the graduates of that Bible college that was, was started as a result of Harold and Leonard's and Wilson's and other, other missionaries' efforts, McLean's, um, that Bible college right now, right now, all these years later, the graduates of that Bible college are right now planting 100 churches just in that state. And the process of planting, this is Brazilians trained by you know, our missionaries and others uh, to go out and they are in the process of planting 100 churches in their state. Let me ask you, how many, how many church plants are there going on among independent Baptists in Florida? I doubt that there's 100, <laughs> honestly. I, I don't know of that many. I know of a handful, but I don't know of that many. That's amazing. Do you think Harold Reiner knew that before he went there? That that'd be the end result of, of his surrendered life and, 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 and not just Harold Reiner, but all the others, so many others that were a part of that. Do you think they all, you know, they just knew by faith that's what God was going to do. They had no idea what God was going to do. What they did know is they had to obey. That's what they knew. They knew that when God said, this is what you need to do, the answer is not, but God. <laughs> the answer is, I need to obey. And we see that then portrayed for us in the next two, two points. We see that in terms of what is then revealed to us in relationship to the potential of Saul, verses 15 and 16, where it says this, But the Lord said to him, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. And listen to the significance of this. To bear my name before Gentiles. Radical. Okay. Kings. Amazing. And the children of Israel. Verse 16, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. And so we notice the, the potential of Saul in, in at least a couple different areas. The potential in terms of serving. Saul would become known as Paul and the Lord would use him to take the Gospel to Gentiles and kings and Jews. And the rest of the book of Acts records the amazing details of just how God did that. And we realize that Scripture doesn't record everything that, that happened, but at least the high points of what God did. And, and Ananias would have never guessed that. He would have never thought that that would be the case, nor would have we if we were there in his shoes. You see, none of us ever knows in advance the potential of one soul. Just one soul that right now may be an unbeliever. 
that you're trying to win to Christ, that you're trying to witness to, that you're trying to reach for the Lord. You don't know the potential of that one soul. We must never underestimate the potential of any person for Christ. How many of you recognize the name Edward Kimball? Some of you that know your church history might recognize the name Edward Kimball. Anybody? You think you know who Edward Kimball is or was? Well, on April 21st of 1855, Edward Kimball led a Sunday school kid to Christ. Just a Sunday school kid, right? Well, it just so happened that that Sunday school kid's name was Dwight Lyman Moody. D.L. Moody. That just one Sunday school teacher led to Christ. And you know the rest of the story, I trust, of how God used D.L. Moody as one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known probably reaching millions of people for Christ, at least hundreds of thousands of people for Christ as he toured so much of the world and preached the gospel. And not only did he, did he reach hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in terms of salvation and professions that were a result of his evangelistic ministries, but he also reached people who would reach people. Because as a result of D.L. Moody's preaching, Wilbur Chapman, another generation of a great evangelist, came to know Christ. And because of Wilbur Chapman's evangelistic ministry, Billy Sunday, the, the drunk baseball player, is what he was before he came to know the Lord from Iowa. Billy Sunday came to know Christ as a result of Wilbur Chapman. Well, then Mordecai Ham came to know Christ as a result of Billy Sunday's preaching, and Billy Graham came to know Christ as a result of Mordecai Ham's preaching. And so there's this lineage, not only of, 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 of one man and Deal Moody and the impact he had in terms of millions of souls coming to know the Lord, but think about the multiplied millions of souls that came to know Christ under all those evangelists combined. Why? From a human perspective. Because there was one faithful Sunday school teacher who led Deal Moody to Christ. A year ago, we were in... Uh, Philadelphia. No, Boston. I get the two mixed up. Boston. And uh, we got to stand right in this spot. They have a plaque there, right in this spot that says, at this place, on this date, this is where Edward Kimball led Dwight L. Moody to Jesus. And they memorialized that. In all likelihood, none of us will ever lead Deal Moody to Christ, or a Deal Moody to Christ but we might lead somebody who will lead somebody who will lead somebody who will lead somebody to Jesus. We might lead somebody who becomes a pastor. We might lead somebody who becomes a missionary. We might lead somebody, lead somebody to Christ that God uses in, in far greater ways than He uses us. But the fact that He uses us is awesome. Amen. It's incredible. It's amazing. He wants to use every one of us. Someone put it this way, behind many well-known servants of God are far lesser-known believers who have been influenced by them. Or who have influenced them, excuse me, who have influenced them. And that was certainly the case with Ananias. He influenced Saul, the Apostle Paul. And you may have someone like that in your sphere of influence right now. It may be a child. It may be a, an adult. It may be a neighbor. It might be a relative. It might be a friend. Might be somebody in this church that God just wants you to be faithful. God just wants you to be obedient, to be available, to have an impact in their life for Jesus Christ, His service. And then notice also His suffering, verse sixteen. We won't go into this in detail for sake of time, but but God also revealed to him, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so part of God's plan for for Saul's life was was suffering, and we see that depicted for us in Second Corinthians four and. 2 Corinthians 11, those are just kind of summaries of some of the suffering. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-18, and 11, 22-33. But there's a, a principle there that I think all of us need to be prepared for, and that's this, that oftentimes those who, whom God uses mightily suffer tremendously. You know, Part of being a disciple of Christ is being willing to do what? Take up your cross. That's right. And, and that's not some weird physical malady. You know, I've heard people say, well, that's my cross to bear in life. And it's like bunions or something. Okay? That's not what it's talking about, folks. What it's talking about is you being willing to suffer for Jesus even to the point of crucifixion. That's what it means to take up your cross. So being a disciple of Christ 
implies the very potential of giving your life for Christ and suffering greatly as a result of that. Are you willing to serve Christ no matter what the cost, no matter what the suffering might be? And so the potential of Saul. And then finally, this evening, the power. The power of God. And, and we'll move through these quickly, but verses 17 through 19, you see in verse 17, immediate obedience. Notice what it says there, verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Don't you love that? End the discussion, right? I mean, he, he says one thing and God says another thing and it's not a, oh yeah, back and forth, 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 right? No, it's, and he entered, and Ananias went his way and entered the house. And he did, as it says there, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's immediate obedience. No more making excuses, more, no more explaining his reluctance to, to God. And that's so important for us to understand. There's a time to ask God. There's a time to ask God about your concerns but there's also a time to act on his commands and just simply do what he tells you to do, even if you don't get it, even if you don't understand it. Sadly, a lot of Christians never get there. They get hung up on all the questions and all the concerns and never get to obedience. And God wants us to obey. Never allow your concerns to override God's commands. Never allow your concerns to override God's commands. Immediate obedience. Secondly, faithful affection. I love, I love the way it's described here in verse 17 in, in terms of he lays his hands on him and then what does he say to him? Notice the very first word out of his mouth? Brother. Brother. Isn't that beautiful? It's not persecutor. It's not former hater of my Lord. It's, it's none of that. It's, it's brother. It's brother Saul. A, a term of affection. He was the first person, I think, to say to Saul, you're my brother. You're part of the family. How do you think that made Saul feel? To ma- I mean, just to think of the, the total transformation, the total flip from animosity and hatred of Jesus and all who followed him to all of a sudden loving Christ, understanding who Jesus truly was, what he had done on the cross for him, embracing that gospel as, as Saul did on the road to Damascus, and then have somebody come along and lay hands on you and say, brother, You're part of the family. What a beautiful thing. How sweet those words must have sounded to the three-day-old baby believer, Saul of Tarsus. Three days in Christ, and someone says, Brother Saul. Faithful affection. Thirdly, miraculous healing. Verse 18 describes then what happens. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and so the miraculous healing, and he receives his sight Fourthly, obedient baptism goes on to say this after he received his sight and he arose and was baptized. By the way, later on in Acts chapter 22, that, that whole Saul, or Saul Paul sharing his testimony there in Acts 22, he says that Ananias is the one who commanded him to get baptized. Ananias told him to get baptized. Again, imagine that privilege <laughs> to say to the man that would become the Apostle Paul, okay, now you need to get baptized. Yes, I do. I'll, I'll obey the Lord and follow him in believer's baptism. What a wonderful privilege all because Ananias was obedient, was obedient. And then finally, fifthly, precious fellowship. Notice the way that's described in verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. How sweet their time must have been together. I mean, who would have thought, right? I mean, we know, we know this Bible account, so this isn't a surprise to us, right? We've learned this since we were Sunday school kids. But imagine this, this, this playing out in your life. Imagine being Ananias. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to happen. How amazing that must have been. These sweet times in a fellowship that were enjoyed between Saul and Ananias. Perhaps Ananias had a part in those days of discipling Saul and explaining to him the connections between the messianic prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. After all, Ananias is described as a devout Jew. And so maybe he got to have the conversations. Of course, you know that, that, that Saul was, a, was a, a scholar. And so imagine their conversations as they interacted over Old Testament Scripture. You see, the sweetest times of fellowship are often enjoyed with people that God has used you to impact. You think about that. If you've ever led somebody to Christ 
and then continued in their growth and maturity and discipling them, having Bible studies with them, there's nothing better than having that privilege and having that joy. The beauty of God, God using you in somebody's life and watching them, as I, you know, as like, as like people like to say, watching them grow like a weed spiritually. I mean, just take off. It's incredible. And it's the way that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. I, I share this passage of Scripture in part tonight with you because this is the passage of Scripture that God used in my own heart to call me from First Baptist Church of Illyria to serve Baptist admissions. I was preaching this text to my people on a Sunday night. And I had been in conversation with the search committee of Baptist admissions and had told them no. I want to pastor First Baptist Church of Illyria until I retire. That's what I want. And that's what I thought God wanted. That's what I thought God wanted. And as I was preaching this passage of Scripture, it was as if the Holy Spirit was saying to me, you hypocrite. You're you're telling your people that God loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and yet you're not willing to be an ordinary person that surrendered. You know a little bit about me, not a lot, but you know a little bit about me. I still just see myself as a farm kid that grew up on the gravel roads of northeastern Nebraska. The rest of my family stories, I came from a blue-collar family. Mom and dad got married. Dad was 18, mom was 16, mom was expecting my older sister. My mom dropped out of high school. Not saved. Just a regular family. Thankfully, my mom came to Christ when I was nine. My dad eventually came to Christ five years later. Just a regular guy. Who would have never expected that God would call him to ministry, period. Let alone call him to shepherd this family called Baptist Missions. At the end of the message, I gave an invitation and only one person came forward. Me me because i realized i was being a hypocrite to tell my people that god wants to use ordinary people to do extraordinary extraordinary things and yet for me to say to god but not me but not me and you can obviously tell the rest is (laughs) it is what it is i am i'm serving exactly where god wants me and i'm thrilled to do so i'm thrilled to do so But my challenge for you tonight is simply this. If God is working in your heart and wants to use you in a way that maybe you weren't planning, and that may not be missions. It may be something altogether different. But if God is working in your heart and you're holding out and saying, but but God, I don't have this ability or that resource or whatever you fill in the blank. I'm just a regular person. I can't do that. Actually, I can't do that's good because the reality of the matter is none of us can. Only God can, right? But if you're holding out on God in some area of obedience in your life, say yes to God tonight. Say, God, I will choose the path of obedience. Does it make sense to me to do this whole laying on hands of Saul, of Tarsus? Maybe not. But God, I'm not you. I'm not... God, I don't know the future, so I'll just trust you. I'll just obey you. I'll just do what you want me to do. Ananias was an ordinary guy that God used in extraordinary ways. But the only reason God used him in extraordinary ways is because he said yes. And God may have something extraordinary in your future, but you have to say yes. <laughs> you may be thinking, but, but, but bad things are going to happen. <laughs> That's what went through the mind of Ananias, did it not? Maybe really good things will happen, right? Because isn't that the case as well in the text? It may be witnessing that you're saying, God, I can't witness, I can't share the gospel with that person. I might lose my job, or I might this or that, or the relationship, or 
Just say, yes, let God use you. It might be serving in this local church in a, in a way that is way beyond your comfort zone. Let God use you. It may be getting involved in missions. It may be going to the mission field. It may be becoming a missionary. It may be helping a new believer. But just think about what God might do through you if you let him, if you say yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight and the opportunity to share a, a text that is so near and dear to me. And Lord, I pray that, that all of us would just say yes, that we would obey whatever that looks like. Lord, I know that you have an individual will for each person in this room or even people that may be watching or listening. And, and I pray, Father, that, that every one of us would be surrendered to whatever that will is and that we would say yes and that we would be willing to do whatever it might be that you want us to do the heads bowed and, and eyes closed tonight I'm, I'm just wondering as i will come back and continue praying if there might be some here tonight that, that sense god is working in your heart and i won't even go into the specifics but god is working in your heart in some way where where you're you're maybe grappling with his will or with an opportunity to serve or or whatever it might look like for you. And tonight, through the, through the ministry of the Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, uh, you're, gonna, you're saying yes. <laughs> so by an upraised hand, so I can pray for you, if God is, is bringing you to the point where you'll, you're saying yes to whatever that might look like in your life, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you and Pastor Paul can pray for you as well? Amen. 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 I'm willing, I might be an ordinary person, but I'm willing to let God use me in whatever way. Amen. He sees fit. Thank you. Slip it up and then slip it back down. Thank you for those that have already raised their hand. It might be to witness to somebody. It might be missions. It might be service in this church. It might be giving. It, it might be something altogether different. Amen. Thank you. I'm just, I'm saying yes to God. I'm not going to hold back or hold out. I'm saying yes. Others that would join these tonight and, and saying, I just, want, I just want God's will, whatever that looks like. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Amen. Anybody else tonight? Father, thank you so much for these that have raised their hand in and, and an expression of submission. And we don't assume in any way, shape, or form that those who didn't raise their hand are not submitted, Lord, because they may be already fully yielded to you and we rejoice in that. But we pray for these that have, by uplifted hand, indicated a willingness to, to surrender to whatever it is they sense you leading them to do. And, and Lord, by, by indicating that, I pray that even right now they're, they're talking to you and, and saying to you, Lord, yes, and, and guide me and lead me and, and, and use me for your glory and that you would do just that in and through everybody in, in this church and that you would impact the world for Jesus Christ through it, we pray in Jesus' name.